0: LegalizeFreedom.com
1: Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat. Beginning in August 2020, Freedom from Fear is a free-form discussion series taking the title as its starting point. In this episode, Bernardo Castrop and I explore how the unique intelligence, which allows humans to sit atop Earth's evolutionary pyramid and have dominion over all life on the planet, is both our greatest gift and the source of our most profound problems, personally and globally. Unlike other creatures, humans have a sense of the past, the future, and our own mortality. Combined with a hardcore scientific materialist worldview, and a dead by then" attitude to the future, it has led our species to the brink of disaster. Bernardo also reveals his own relationship with fear. Hi Bernardo, Uh, thanks for joining us once again today on LegalizeFreedom.com.
0: Thanks for having me Greg, it's a pleasure to be here every time.
1: Thank you. Well, today uh, you're taking part in a new series that I started some weeks ago um, entitled Freedom from Fear. Um, And really, it's a free-form discussion format that takes the title as its starting point. Uh, Before we do get started, though, uh, for listeners who don't know, tell them just a little bit about your background and your work.
0: Um, Okay, I have had uh, two lives. Uh, One, uh, I've been a computer engineer, I have worked in management and corporate strategy in the high-tech world for well over uh, two decades. In parallel to that, um, I've also been a philosopher, uh, um, a published philosopher for the past uh, 10 plus years. I also have a doctorate in philosophy, um, and I do work on philosophy of mind, ontology. My my biggest motivator is uh, to find out, uh, to the extent that that we can find out as human beings, uh, what this is all about, what is the nature of reality, what is the nature of life and death, and then... What should we do in this condition we find ourselves in?
1: Okay. Well, if listeners are interested, uh, we do have, as you alluded to a moment ago, um, a number of shows recorded together that they can find in the archive at uh, legalizedfreedom.com. So if they want to explore a bit more of your work directly, then they can check those out. The idea came to me, as I said, it was just three words, freedom from fear. And it was just one night a few months ago, really, uh, when I, like everyone else, was trying to come to terms with what's happening in the world vis-a-vis the pandemic, we we're recording this at the start of November 2020. And I was seeing, still am just witnessing so much fear in my fellow humans. And it got me thinking about, I don't know, how to maybe try and put that in perspective because it's what I've done with myself personally when I've faced fear in life, tried to distance myself from it somewhat and try and see it for what it is and understand what actually is is fear worthy and what is actually what's the difference between fear and, and low-level anxiety and then started thinking about the perhaps the evolutionary purpose of fear and I'll, I'll maybe open by putting a point to you just a thought that's come up each time i've done this this is number four and that is the purpose of fear in terms of survival you know a flight or fight reaction you know that there was an imminent danger uh, to mm-hmm. ourselves um or, or our fellow tribe and we need to take action but beyond that really what f- what function fear if any serves so if you can take anything of what i've said really as a starting point if you <laughs> if you want to just you know get us going
0: i think fear is of course uh, evolutionarily advantages um, animals who feel fear tend to survive longer, <laughs> because uh, they stay alive, they, they run away from the source of fear, which, which can be a threat. Um, what makes us humans, I think, uh, fairly unique is that um, that fear that was supposed to kick in only in situations of threat, threats to our lives as, as animals, um, in our case, because we've developed this very peculiar thing called metacognition. We are aware of ourselves, Uh, we are aware of the past and the future, we know we are going to die. Um, We can imagine future scenarios. We are not locked into the present like my cats are. Uh, We can imagine, even in situations in which we are completely safe, we can imagine that tomorrow we might not be, or ten years from now we might not be. And our emotions then get triggered by these uh, imaginations or, or regrets about the past. And that's fairly unique, um, because it has taken that evolutionarily useful moment reaction we call fear and it uh, sort of we, weaved that Throughout our lives, we feel fear even if we are not in immediate threat. I would say fear is the most dominant human emotion across the board. Every culture, uh, every part of, of, of the earth, um, it, it, it lies hidden behind even apparently different emotions like anger, violence, fury. Uh, hiding underneath that and as the fountainhead of that anger is fear <laughs> fear anger is just fear in in another formulation sort of a uh, with different clothes but uh, but it is fear and th- that's our uniqueness we know we are going to die we know that even if we are not uh, um, uh, uh, under threat now uh, it's inevitable that uh, later on we will be and, uh, and we know the things that are threatening other people right now of, or, or have threatened them in the past. You know, the diseases you can have, the things that can happen in society, the job you may lose, the partner that, uh, that uh, may break up with you. We know that these things may happen. So even if, we, even if they are not happening, our imagination, our metacognitive ability to imagine future scenarios is triggering that primal emotion in us. So, in a sense, I think we pay a gigantic price for our our metacognition. It, it's a handsome ability. It has allowed us to, to have domain over the Earth, at least over every other uh, living being on this planet that isn't human. But we pay a, a unfathomable price uh, for it uh, in terms of suffering. Enormous, enormous, almost unimaginable.
1: Well, in terms of human evolution, and I... Done a lot of reading, and I'm very interested in the idea that that we are evolving. Because to listen to a lot of people, even um, scientists in this area, that you get the impression that they think, well, we're more or less it, you know, despite all our shortcomings and all our feelings that you know we're the we're the finished object, and just a few more refinements will get us there. And you know, human evolution is essentially stopped. And the situation you describe kind of puts in mind the idea that. We are evolving, but different dimensions of our, I mean, physical evolution may or may not have stopped in humans, but certain dimensions of our, of our, our of our characters and our, our minds and their evolution is happening at different rates. So it's almost like parts of us are getting ahead of the rest of us, if you see what I mean. It's not an even picture. Like someone having, you know, incredibly strong arms and incredibly weak legs or something, mm-hmm. if you see what I mean. You know, it's a mismatch. Yeah. It's a mismatch. And I wonder if we are on some sort of evolutionary path and that we just represent a sort of an a slightly unbalanced transitory phase, <laughs> if you see what I mean.
0: Yeah. But, see, I, I don't, I'm not sure there is uh, consensus in evolutionary biology <clears throat> regarding whether we have reached the end of the road as far as physical evolution. I think there is some polemic. I'm not sure. I'm not an expert in that. But uh, whether that's the case or not, it's almost immaterial for us because uh, physical evolution takes place over such long timescales um, that compared to the scale in which uh, historical events unfold, it might as well not happen at all. We may, we may g- ignore physical evolution because we are talking here at the very best case, uh, we are talking about thousands of years. Now, what happens within a cultural or historical scale within those thousands of years is, you know, there are many, many, many transformations of uh, everything we think to know, uh, the way we live, the technologies we use, everything changes. So I think uh, physical evolution, whether it has stopped or not, it's immaterial. Uh, I think you are correct. The way we are evolving now is at a cultural level and at a psychological level as well. The way we relate to ourselves and the world um, is driven uh, to a very large extent by our own thoughts and emotions, not, not necessarily by changing physical characteristics, if you know what I mean. I think the the culture, what we read, what we see, what we hear in conversation, the values we inherit from parents, from teachers, doctors and acquaintances, this is what's driving how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about the world, not our genetic evolution, which may or may not be taking place, but it's irrelevant, I think.
1: It feels almost like, in some respects, and I've made similar comments to this over the years, that also not only are parts aspects of ourselves changing and growing and evolving at different rates that as a species we are and perhaps this is to be expected i mean again i don't know much about evolutionary biology other than just you know layman's you know cursory reading of a few popular books but it seems that you know populations of other living creatures on earth can Certain populations can move in what could be, even with hindsight, viewed as positive directions more so than others. And that, you know, certain traits come to be adopted, others die out, albeit physical ones. But, you know, we're, I think now, as you say, in the realm of the evolution of the, of the mind, of the, the, the psyche. And it does feel that we have, I, I certainly feel like we're we're regressing in some respects. But also that there's huge potential, particularly in pivotal moments of crisis, like the one we're living through at the minute, there's great potential to be spurred on to better, more successful ways of being and living for us, more balanced ways. And you can read into any of that what you want. So it's almost like at the minute, the challenges that we've been doing and thinking and being up to this point, what's working, what isn't, you know, are we able and ready to discard some of that. Are we ready to Are we ready to evolve? Basically, is almost like the question because we we there's the idea of punctuated equilibrium in yeah. evolutionary theory about times of crisis basically and and how evolution essentially can speed up it can a very gr- great number of changes in a small space of time.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> I don't think we can transcend our humanity Um, I think when we talk about evolution in a cultural sense or a psychological sense I think perhaps what we mean is uh, how do we become more aware of that which exists within us at least in potentiality and then how do we find a healthy way to reconcile ourselves with our own nature and express ourselves in a way of our choosing in a healthy way for ourselves, for each other, and for the planet. So, this is what I would consider to be a a trajectory of evolution for humanity in a non-biological scale. Um, But I think the danger is when we think we can transcend our own nature. And then you are seeing this danger uh, all over the world today. You you said something earlier. You said uh, you, you had the impression that we are devolving. I don't think we are. I think uh, what's happening is that our shadow side is is manifesting is becoming visible. I think the generation of our parents, the, the the baby boomers, they were born immediately after uh one of perhaps or perhaps the most evil dark period uh in human history, uh, certainly in European history. Um and and of course their generation uh, swung the pendulum all the way to the other side and gave us what is now the longest period of uh, peace and prosperity uh, on this continent uh, ever. There has never been peace and prosperity for so long uh, on the European continent and arguably nowhere else uh, either. There, there has always been conflict uh, and that's part of human nature. So I think our parents' generation... Um, they had this potential for darkness in them as well but because of the historical juncture in which they found themselves they expressed another side of human nature and now we are at a point in which you know the, the shadow within us claims for recognition and I think it is wise to recognize the evil uh, in all of us not to give it free reign don't 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 Please, uh, (laughs) may your audience not misinterpret me. I'm not saying we should give free reign to the evil within us, to the darkness within us. But it is within us, and we we do not do a service to ourselves or to nature by denying that aspect of ourselves. Because, uh, as Carl Jung used to say, the Swiss psychiatrist, the moment you deny your shadow, that's the moment when you fall uh, under the control of your shadow. Because it's like that um, that expression people say, you know, keep your friends close, but keep your enemies even closer. Uh, it, it's directly applicable here. Keep your shadow close to you. Uh, stay aware of it. Uh, recognize its existence. Tell to it, you know, I, I, I grant you the right to exist, even though I will not give you free reign. I think that is extremely important, because if we don't do that what will happen is that we we will project our shadow. And throughout the course of uh, human barbarity, um, this has been the underlying process. We project what is dark within us that we do not want to recognize in ourselves. We project it on somebody else. We project it on people of another race, even though even the term race is sort of counter-scientific. Humans do not have enough variation for us to speak of race. But we project that on people that we perceive as different we project that in other cultures, like the, the the Jews, my God, did they get that projection uh, in the early 20th century and even in the 19th century? Um, and that is not wise. I think that that's the trigger for for barbarity. That that's the way we fall under the control of our shadow. And um, so the current historical juncture in which our shadow is manifesting clearly, I think by uh, Ignoring it and denying its existence will lead us to dehumanize others and look at the u s now we are talking in the in, uh, in the evening before the u s election that the country is divided in two, and both sides dehumanize the other and that, that's a tragedy that, that that's a recipe for for disaster so I, I don't think we are devolving as much as our shadow is forcing a recognition and if we don't recognize it we will project it and that is the recipe for catastrophe.
1: When Donald Trump uh, was diagnosed with uh, COVID-19 there was a lot of online celebration people wishing for his death and I remember a few scattered comments from people I don't know whether they were Trump supporters or not but they you know they, they sounded like sort of really concerned uh, and just saying, it's like, wow, well, you know, when you're praying for a man's death, basically, your fellow human's death, no matter what you think they've done or what they're like, then that really says something. And it's it's very interesting that you've got onto this particular topic without me bringing it up. That the shadow side, because that's something I've explored in a few recent interviews. And if if I was to have start my professional life again. I would either be an architect, which I originally wanted to be, or probably a psychologist because it's a thing that I spend most time looking at and almost can't find any problem that exists in the human world that isn't traced back to our, the workings of our minds, <laughs> our psychology and how we think about things. Jung, the, I can't remember the exact quote from him, but I'm, I'll just paraphrase. It was something along the lines of that which is denied in the unconscious or the subconscious manifests itself in the world as an event fate. because fate. yes you take jung's idea of synchronicity and also you know how events in the world play out reflecting back you know the the, the inner world and um yeah,
0: yeah. he said if you if you ignore the unconscious it will manifest in your life to it, no, it manifest in, in your life and take control of you and you will call it fate
1: Yes, exactly, and it's it's almost like a it's almost like the dream world spilling over into our 3D reality that we take to be all that there is. Because I remember the first time that I started to explore dreams and their meaning and interpretation, and one one of the things I remember most or that stuck in my mind earliest on was that like they're trying to tell you something. It may be on a symbolic level, but it's something that you should pay attention to. And I remember reading about Uh, I had a lot of dreams for a while about um, houses. Some of them were houses that I I had lived in in the past or had been in that were familiar to me, or sometimes it was combinations of these buildings. But in my dreams, they were very often uh, disordered or disturbing, very messy, and sometimes in a almost David (laughs) Cronenberg-esque biological horror sort of way. It was like, this is disgusting. (laughs) This is absolutely disgusting quite disturbing and then i i remember reading this interpretation said in dreams um a house is the dreamer's mind and i was like okay there's a lot to unpack there
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah this is not a recipe of course Uh, jungians would immediately rise and say well you can't take that out of context you need to know the dreamer and the context the history but in general uh, this is a a rule of thumb yeah if you dream of a house it's a reflection of your own mind yeah
1: Okay, yeah, well, you know, so something for me to ponder, which I have been doing. <laughs> While we're mentioning Jungian psychology and, and shadow side of our nature, um, I'll just throw in an author called Paul Levy, an American author, does a lot of good work in this area and there's a couple of interviews with him on legalizedfreedom.com, people should check that out. And also Colin E. Davis and Melissa Murray, check out my interviews with them they're extremely interested in this before i forget talking about biological evolution i don't really read fiction anymore because i've told myself i don't have time but occasionally i hear about a book that so- sounds like i really really want to read it a novel and uh, one of the most recent i read was galapagos by kurt vonnegut and for a, a wildly um, alternative biological evolutionary evolutionary future for human beings born out of a time of global crisis i recommend people read that it's 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 kind of extremely dark and disturbing but funny as well so where to next it's interesting that uh, you used the phrase um when you were talking about your cats earlier about locked into the present because yeah. uh one of the popular um you know in terms of pop psychology one of the popular trends uh, in the late 20th and early 21st century, has been uh, it, it, this is embodied by someone like Eckhart Tolle, for example. in his power of now is mm-hmm. to is to re not become necessarily locked into the present, but to reengage with the present, to be here now, be in the moment. Because uh, you spoke about fear in terms of regrets of the past, fear of the future. So that we're being enjoined quite often these days by pop psychologists and gurus and whatnot to to live in the moment act upon that which we can control you know the past is gone the future is well in its place so that's just interesting though, because the part of you talked about our metacognition which has allowed us of course to think um you know to have a relationship with the past and the future in the way that 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 most other creatures as far as we know do not have
0: yeah you see um ultimately we are only ever in the present even our memories are experienced in the present and our imaginations about the future and they too are experienced in the present but at the cost of the state of the world in the present we project an inner state uh, into the present Um, so ultimately we are always uh, in the present the the question is uh, how do you populate that present do you populate that present with the immediate reality around you Uh, the immediate state of your own being or do you populate that with imagination or memories? I think that's the question. The problem is, uh, look, there is no doubt that people like uh, Eckhart Tolle and people like uh, my friend uh, Rupert Spira, they are absolutely right. If you manage to attune yourself to the real present, the natural present, not the present you populate with memories and imagination, um, then a lot of the fear, anxiety will dissipate because, you know, most of the time we are not in danger. Most of... Even if you have a terminal diagnosis, the vast majority of the time you are not in danger. You, you know you will be in mortal danger at some point, but most of the time we are not in danger. But that's not the reality we live. Uh, we live and we evoke the emotions of the realities we imagine. And and that's the problem. Now, you see, we live in a society that rewards us handsomely for not being in the present. Uh, look, uh, uh, me, um, until very recently, for 15 years, I earned a very good living um, by, by predicting the future. I, I've done corporate strategy in the high-tech world for over 15 years. And what was my job? My job was to predict the future and guide uh, uh, companies and product teams towards making the best things, the most effective uh, things for that imagined future. Uh, My job was to gaze into a crystal ball. And and, and look, I was handsomely rewarded for that. So uh, this is just my example, but we are all rewarded for remembering the past, and imagine in the future that, that, um, speculators uh, in, the, in the in the financial markets. What do you think they're rewarded for? Um, so it's very difficult, uh, given the cultural cultural value system and the economic system in which we live. It's very difficult to to control that uniquely human ability to uh, invent our our own present through memories and imagination. In a healthy way, it's very difficult to do that.
1: In some ways, uh, so that you mentioned uh, some of what you just did, uh, I think that a lot of our systems that are now in, in deep difficulty, economic systems, environmental, energy, political systems, social systems, even culture, is partly to do with short-termism. You know, this is a the epitome of this is the uh, election cycle in many uh, so-called democratic countries, where you know politicians are in control of so many of these things, are just thinking about getting through the next few years, and uh, more thinking about the past in terms of what have we learned, and more and more projecting into the future beyond the lifetimes of governments, beyond the lifetimes even of, po- of politicians, uh, might actually benefit us.
0: That's correct, but the difference is, I think we are rewarded for thinking about the future within the term of our expected lifetime. So you're rewarded for thinking about what will happen to you. I'm 46 years old, so I will be rewarded by society and by myself uh, for uh, thinking about the future 40 years into the future. But uh, society will not reward me, and I will not reward myself, according to our reigning cultural values, for thinking about what will happen 100 years from now, because I, I'm going to be dead. And if you think about 150 years from now, then not only will, will you, whoever is hearing, listening to this, will be dead, but their kids will be dead, and their kids' kids will be dead. In other words, everybody you know or will know that will have any importance uh, to you will be dead. And then that's when it goes wrong, because you see, we, we do reward the future but the future of our own lifetimes and the people we love—we uh, we live under this metaphysics of materialism that says that once you're dead, then then there is nobody there to to care either way about what's going to happen. You you do not have a stake in in the far future, meaning a future of a hundred years ago, which actually less than a, the blink of an eye in a historical perspective. Um, you do not have a stake in that. And we inherit that belief. Um, Even the ones who say that uh, they are convinced that, whatever, if you're a Catholic, you have a soul and you're going to go to heaven. Even the ones who who truly believe that they hold these positions deep, deep, deep inside, they are also sort of looking at the future 200 years from now as something largely abstract. So I don't think the problem is that... uh, we don't reward the future. I think we do reward the future. The problem is that we don't reward the future that to come before we are dead and everybody we love is dead. Because we think we don't have a stake. Mm,
1: of course, yeah. And uh, even the most benign and benevolent of us, it's difficult to, to consider things in some ways outside of those, those time frames. I, I marvel at...
0: Yeah, look, the... things would be very different if we had very, very solid scientific evidence right now. We may even have it, but it Well, suppose we had incontrovertible uh, scientific evidence right now, wildly uh, communicated. Suppose there was social consensus across, you know, segments of society that global warming is going to have a very detrimental effect for all of our lives 20 years from now hey, things would be very different right now. But because people are saying, well, the models predict that in 100 years we will be in real serious trouble, then people don't care. Because under the metaphysics of materialism, they do not have a stake. Nobody they know, they themselves will not be there, nobody they love will be there. And that's the problem, you see.
1: Well, to be honest, people are sometimes willing to disregard the futures of their own children in some of these uh, respects you know not yep. even not even that far ahead but you know but within this sort of the 20-year time frame uh, yeah you're saying there isn't maybe the scientific consensus or not one that's that's sufficiently well articulated or promoted or whatever but yeah i've definitely seen people making decisions uh that, that they must know will be probably you know detrimental to it's, the futures it, it, of their own children
0: I think deep inside it's because they think they can get away with it, it's because the people who will suffer are the people in Bangladesh, a country that is enormously densely populated and it's almost at sea level and, and those people will lose their country but hey, it's the people in Bangladesh it's not my kids, I'll go live in a house in the Swiss Alps so that's. I think that's what's going on there. So even even the short-term um, speculators in the financial markets, and they care about the future of 40 years from now if they are 40 years old. It's just that they think if they exploit enough uh, of the resources available on the short term, they can put enough in the bank and they can ride the wave until the day they, they check out. So I, I think people do think um, long term within the scale of a human life um, the problem is we are not inheriting a a metaphysics or, and or a value system that gives a stake in what will happen beyond that that concludes part 1 of our interview part 2 will be available soon
1: in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com
0: Legalizedfreedom.com.